Welcome to the Touching Into Presence podcast. This podcast is for people who are interested in bodywork, empowerment, and somatic-based practices. I am Nikki Olson. I'm Andrew Rosenstock. We are certified rolfers. Collectively, we're trained in various movement and bodywork therapies with an emphasis on somatic awareness and client resilience. Through conversations, our goal is to share and explore mind-body paradigms to offer empowerment possibilities. We're grateful to be in conversation with Carol Agnesens. Carol began training at the Rolf Institute in 1981. She has been in private practice for 38 years. In addition to rolfing, her practice includes cranial sacral therapy and movement. In 2019, she resigned from the Rolf Institute faculty after teaching basic, advanced, and Rolf movement trainings for many years. She's the author of one of my favorite books, The Fabric of Wholeness. A desire to gain a deeper understanding of the cranium beyond seventh-hour dynamics led her to an in-depth study of the cranial sacral system and embryology. With her colleague, Ray McCall, she teaches foundational trainings in cranial sacral therapy. In today's talk, we dive straight into anti-racism somatics our cellular cultural imprints, Carol's history with the Rolf Institute and how her movement and structural work evolved into biodynamic cranial sacral and embryology work and where it's unfolding now. We'll talk a little bit about yield and a lot more. So with that, let's begin our talk. Hi. Thank you. Hi, Andrew. <laughs> Carol, it's nice to meet you via Zoom. You too. We're both... Really excited to have you on. I mean, I, I did my phase three with Ray, so your name would come up. And a few people in my training had either started or were going to start the cranial training with you and Ray. So right. I'd heard your name, but I don't remember. I think I, I found your book a lot earlier. I don't remember when or how, but I'd found your book and it was just like finding gold. It It was like... This is this is a lot of what I've been working with, feeling with, connecting with, but hadn't had um, the the words to to say. And you, I actually, I just finished about a month ago reading the eco psychology book that you quoted a lot from that, the Laura Sewell book. That book is amazing. Which one is that? Remind the uh, eco psychology of perception. Oh yes, oh yes, that's good. Oh, it's so like good. Again. Yeah. <laughs> because your your whole kind of the um, title for this is, um, you know, touching into presence. Mm -hmm. So that eco-psychology book, because truly right now we are, we are touching into presence in such a chaotic time. Mm -hmm. We're really being assaulted <laughs> on every level of our ability to be with ourselves and to hold some kind of sanity within ourselves as everything is dismantled around us from the uh, climate. You know, we just went through a number of fires here in California. I've had friends who've lost their homes to ah, the, the racism that's going on. Ah, to the women's movement and with the loss of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, mm 
women's rights, reproductive rights are so important. <laughs> so as much as I'll talk about, you know, how I got here, I also feel it's really important to bring this into a perspective of today. And what's exciting me right now is this uh, group of structural integrators begun by uh, Paul Wirth, who's an advanced rolfer, and Ryan Horfer to really look at anti-racism somatics. And that they initiated that after a George Floyd's death. And there's about eight people, including me, who are a core group of this. And uh, it's really been powerful in looking at what imprints culturally do I carry in my own system and how does that affect. So we'll be launching a website, Paul is a techno genius, called Liberation Somatics. Ooh, I like this. <laughs> Let me tell you, this group is really amazing. And because of what we're all being asked to um, stand for, literally to stand in solidarity with our sisters and brothers of color. This is a really important piece for body workers to also acknowledge. Body work, at least, is, is predominantly by whites, for yeah, whites. For whites. And so how, do you, how do you take it beyond that? How do you how do you breach that and bring it to is by all people for all people? And that's what we're looking at too, is how do we, and I think it begins with deconstructing literally the understanding of what white colonialism is within my own body, that imprint. And then, which has an attitude of arrogance <laughs> and superiority, because remember our country was founded on genocide and racism. That's what it was founded on. Hmm. So how, how do I begin to really differentiate those uh, learned beliefs that are so deep? It's like looking under rocks. It's like the thing about body work is that it is a portal. You never have to be bored. <laughs> really, that's what... That's the edge I'm riding right now mm -hmm. because it's movement. And, you know, there are many people who say our bodies are not just a structure. We are a process. We are a verb. Buckminster Fuller says we are a verb. So, so this uh, process of really beginning to look at how our whiteness and the roots of that and begin to deconstruct and learn where is it in my own system that I still hold these imprints? They're cultural imprints. You know, uh, studying movement. I actually began at the Rolf Institute in 1981, studying, they had the movement training first. You could take movement training without taking the Rolfing training. Hmm. So I took the movement training first, and I was so lucky. I had uh, the, the, the context. Again, we're looking at. What's going on in the field around you when, and you have to realize that in the 70s, uh, late 60s, 70s, mid uh, to the mid 80s, it was about um, how do you enrich yourself? What is 
self-actualization and how how does, you know, and you had this constellation of brilliance from Dr. Rolf, uh, Lulu Schweigard, um, Charlotte Silver, uh, Fritz Perls, uh, Moshe Feldenkrais, you know, all of them coming together and, and creating this human potential movement. And part of that human potential was the body. And, you know, and so all of these techniques seem to just come together and burst forward. It was such an exciting time. So the Rolf Institute at that time was known as the Bodywork School, the Mystery School of Bodywork. <laughs> so that's where a lot of us began, you know, and early 80s, 1981. And um, it was it was a great, it was in the little Pearl Street, 302 Pearl Street, <laughs> which is, um, I think, now a dispensary. And anyway, that's kind of funny. <laughs> so, but that's where it began. And I thought, oh, what a sacred place, you know, for a sacred herb. You know, it's like, but that's where it began, this little tiny house. And yet, you know, when I finally found Rolfing in Seattle, Washington, it was like, it changed my world, so I expected it to be a huge place. <laughs> There's this little tiny house on Pearl Street with emerald green carpeting. <laughs> anyway, lots of fun. And um, so that that whole process of, of where we began in this human potential movement, and Esalen flowed from that time, you know, Peter Melchior, Jan Sultan were all st- students of Dr. Rolf down in Esalen. It was an exciting time to be part of this. Uh, And, you know, then I took the Rolfing training, which was very, so valuable, so valuable for me. And um, having had a number of car accidents and other incidents, uh, Rolfing just really changed my life. That was great. Any question? (laughs) (laughs) You just went, you went on a roll. That was awesome. (laughs) So um, I'll just keep going. Yeah, Yeah, please. Please. This is my early years were Emmett Hutchins uh, in the movement training. We would take the morning with Emmett and uh, the afternoon in movement. And uh, then for my um, practicing in Rolfing, it was Peter Melchior and Ron, Ron McComb and Jim Asher and those people. And Betsy Sice, who was probably one of the few women who was assisting at that time. And that was just such a treat to have her. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that, that influence? Because, you know, the Rolf Institute in the early days definitely was pretty male dominant. I'm curious... <laughs> what what is the female energy like especially again stories that we hear from Ida kind of probably leaned a little bit more on the masculine yes so then to have yeah a female assistant yeah <laughs> well it was a, a very large class and I was very grateful that Betsy was there um it wasn't until 19 I I 
belonged to the board of um, directors early on in 86, 87, 88, might've been 89 too, but I planned, I remember at one specific uh, conference, which was held at the Boulderado, they finally said, because the women were saying, hey, where are the teachers? And they finally said, we're opening it up to teachers now, to women teachers. <laughs> so, you know, you still had to go through all of the uh, assisting and all of that. But they finally, that wasn't until probably 1988 that they began to really <laughs> bring forward women yeah, because before you had to weigh at least 160 pounds. And remember, you had to put the quarter on the palm of your hand and they had to see if your hand was big enough <laughs> in relationship to that quarter. <laughs> so that yeah, one. we had uh, Judith Aston on not too long ago and she was sharing a little bit of her story oh, of... <laughs> making paving her way as a, a tiny tiny but bold strong woman oh, into the she's wonderful yeah she's absolutely wonderful I took a training with her a, a three day in Seattle two years ago I really enjoyed I just really wanted to to meet and to be with kind of a root of this whole movement uh, curriculum she was very much at the beginning very creative um, so after, you know, rolfing, I've always had a very, I've been lucky to have a very full practice and, um, wherever I lived and I lived along a lot of different places, but, um, I started studying some cranial sacral therapy because I, I felt like I just didn't understand enough about the cranium and, um, so the first, some of the first classes were with, uh, I mentored with an upledger teacher, but I, I couldn't move the bones. It felt too invasive to move bones on the cranium. And it wasn't until I saw a flyer from Tom Shaver, who was an osteopath, is an osteopath in Japan or Hawaii now, that he talked about liquid light. <laughs> So it was the, that, wow, that's what I've been looking for. This liquid light within the cerebral spinal fluid that moves the bones. And so I spent some time studying with him and Ron Murray, who's a very wonderful cranial teacher. He teaches other things too, but he is very good at that. And Jim Asher, I've taken classes with him. So it's this movement. And as I started going into more of the cranial sacral work, reading uh, the work of Andrew Taylor Still and how the work with this fluidity and the membranes, how that really began to change my structure even more and resolve some of the, the uh, issues I had with migraines and and uh, and that, you know. So I highly recommend really beginning to understand this flow of the cranial sacral system. It's extremely uh, valuable to know and to understand that it's not just about moving bones, but it's these membranes 
that also are really at the root of some issues and feeling that through the body and learning to listen to the system rather than perhaps just apply uh, a protocol. So that study and both Ron and Tom Ron Murray and Tom Shaver really brought in a lot of embryology and that triggered an interest for some reason <laughs> in me. Uh, I was a caring, also caring for my mother at the time who um, I took care of for, for a number of years and just knowing the embryology and knowing the whole understanding of implantation and what happens at implantation that when she she was literally in her dying process, it was like we were in this bubble of love. And I felt like that sense of implantation and her moving into her other, the beyond, and me finally really sensing mother within myself was just this embryological beginning for me. I now teach a lot of the embryology in the cranial classes because it's how we come into formation. So what Emmett, going back to Emmett Hutchins, he presented something about the lemniscate. This lemniscate, which is the infinity sign. Okay. And from I've gotten validation from Ron that that lemniscate is actually the shape of formation in the bones, in the cranium, in the body. And that movement, when that begins to appear into your hands, you're really touching uh, like almost the time lapse of beginning. This is how we come into formation, from outside to inside, from inside to outside. And that, that flow of formation shapes us. So when I feel a shoulder girdle that just feels discombobulated and not in place, after I've worked with the, the muscles and tendons, when the system begins to show me that lemniscate-like movement within itself, that very quiet movement, then I know that something deeper has settled. There's something deeper that's going on and integrating into the system, whether it's someone's neck or zygoma or temporal bone. There are lemniscate-like motions that begin to show themselves to your hands, to my hands, as um, different issues begin to resolve in someone's system. And this is what I've studied in uh, <laughs> for a while now. And it's, um, it's an intrigue, this shaping that goes on. And these shapes are also in nature. Whether we're looking at a tree, you see the spirals, you see the, the movement uh, within a leaf, how the, the stems grow <laughs> in spirals, and 
these movements that are in nature are also in our bodies. We are not linear. In fact, I remember asking Emmett, how do you touch muscles that are so spiraling in their in their formation and in they're not linear muscles how do you let your hands shape to them and uh, so that's it's been a it's been a question it's been a interest for a long time well speaking how fluid oriented you are i'm curious if you could talk a little bit more about the umbilical area uh, I, I watched or listened to a, a previous podcast of yours and that definitely sparked my interest because I, you know, after having two children, I ended up getting an umbilical hernia. And so my whole, my whole world of trying to figure out my core again and this hernia, I've never had a hernia um, for. So, and, and so, yeah, I'm just really curious and also with back pain. So definitely have, I've kind of been in this curiosity, but then hearing you who has been so well yeah. into this, I'm like, Ooh, Ooh. Well, the first thing <laughs> curious. Is, I'm always curious what, you know, in interviews, beginning interviews, what was your birth like? You know, was it a forceps birth? Was it a breech birth? Was it a vaginal birth? You know, what, how was your mother during these things? So I, so how I, my birth was versus yeah. how I delivered my children. I want to know both. <laughs> so your birth, my birth, I was induced. Induced. Okay. okay. And, um, so, I mean, this was, you know, 43 years ago and, uh, yeah, my mom, my mom was done with me being, um, inside of her and was like, get this kid out. So there I was. And then ironically, my, so I, with my births, I wanted to have kind of, I was always planning to deliver in a hospital that felt like a comfortable setting for me, but I did, I wanted to try to do it drug free. But my first kid, I ended up having to induce. He was, we were 40, he, he was 41 weeks and then starting showing signs of stress, which was not yeah. his we was easygoing still a very easygoing kid but yeah so i tried to do an um an epidural free birth with him but then after a while with that pitocin i was like seven hours later and not dialing you i'm like all right give it to me and then voila i love i actually becoming like because being a rolfer in the wellness industry blah 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 people are thinking you're gonna have be like the mama birthing at home yeah. <laughs> and stuff. I actually, and then my second one, he, again, I was going to try to have a natural birth with him. I hate that. I, I hate calling it natural because I think birthing is however way it happens is natural. Yeah. Um, but yeah, a drug free delivery. I was hoping with my second kid, but no, he has a kidney disease and he, um, he needed, I ended up del delivering at children's hospital oh, and wow. had a C-section. Uh -huh. And um, I had a duel with me with both of them. And I loved my deliveries. As weird as it may seem and as medical and like invasive it was, yeah. I felt so loved and supported. And um, yeah, it's just, it's a weird, and I really like an epidural. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Being, having the being in that like space of like, 
I'm fully conscious. I'm fully aware of what's going on. And I can't feel half of my body. It was kind of, granted, I have a brother who's quadriplegic. So I think there's a little piece of like, oh, this is what my brother feels like. But um, so, yeah, those were, that's, that's how I came in the world. And that's how I brought two lovely beings into the world. So have you had a surgery for the umbilical hernia? No. Okay. No, I, I've seen two surgeons about it. One was a very um, kind of crassy type dude, doctor, and was, you know, just let's open you up and throw some mesh on it. And I'm like, I, I, I don't know if that's the approach I want. Yeah. So I just sat with it for a while because it didn't really, it doesn't really bother me. But then I went and saw a woman who does do um, umbilical surgeries without mesh. But the problem with me is because of my rectus diastasis, it's, there's no tissue for that for this to grab on. So, um, so for me, if I wanted to do a non mesh surgery, it does, it's pretty invasive. It's, it's pretty full on, like go in, sew up the linea alba and then fix the hernia. Mm-hmm. And I'm still wondering if I want to do that. I don't love the way it looks, but whatever, it's whatever. I'm a fully outie than before I had really <laughs> strong inner belly button. But the only thing that I'm a little wondering about, because I guess smaller hernias are more at risk, more dangerous, because the adipose or a wrist or whatever visceral, there's ability for it to slip through the, the hole and then strangle versus a larger hernia tissue can, you know, can move in and out. Yes. Yeah. So, so I'm just sitting with it. Of course, you know, I wasn't going to do it. My youngest is three years old, so it's still not a very convenient time to be uh-huh. laid up for a while. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm just, and also I wanted to give it more time to see what I could do to bring more function to my um, linea alba and just kind of see, give it time and see what happens. Yeah. But um, I don't, I, you know, I don't want to be ignorant and avoid you know, avoid surgery just because, and then end up with a bigger problem. So right. I'm just still pondering and doing my research, but yeah. So with that, I would love to hear your insight. And Well, I'll tell you, I have a skeleton here. <laughs> so, you know, you just know where the third, third, fourth ver- lumbar vertebrae are and the umbilicus sits kind of right above that. Mm-hmm. So, so that's kind of always my landmarks for any kind of umbilical work. And there's always in any kind of uh, stress situation, especially umbilical stress, it's not just in the body. It's, it's also above the body. There's literally you can feel the tension or the stress or the concern that sometimes is if I was holding up here around L4-5, I mean, um, L3-4, this whole area, you're really working with what is the pull that's going on and the tensions that sometimes are in within, but also just how do you guard, if you do, this part of your system? Do you tend to guard it or hold it or you know so i would be curious about what's also happening above your body kind of off body and how that whole context is 
feeding into any kind of low back pain and stress because it's all part of one system. So whether it's the um, knowing that that little, um, that there may be more herniation that can happen, you, you do want to be careful of not uh, letting that intestine strangulate. It's, it's really important. And, but there is more than just what's happening between your skin body. <laughs> There's also stress that can be held above the body. And it's literally an umbilical stress that you can feel. And sometimes that helps to settle it. And you can also begin to work with making those connections from your low back because the legs begin around L4-5 and how also getting that, that whole process of connection down through the legs to support what's going on at the umbilical level. But it's in, in within your system and it's also maybe some tensions held literally above the navel navel area well for sure i mean i also have scoliosis that i've had since i was a kid so um that may be tied into the scoliosis yeah i think <laughs> i think there's i think there's a whole there's a whole a, journey in that one yeah but and, yeah so yeah i'm curious again um i, I would love to talk about myself this <laughs> podcast but I don't think the audience would care for that. <laughs> so, but I'm again curious too. You could talk more about the fluidity and the the connection that you had with the the umbilical and the viscera and uh, yeah. I just I I'm I'm really also in this whole fluid medium with alignment. Yes. I, and I'm just really enjoying that dance. I'm also in a very somatic uh, studies right now. So it's uh -huh. been fun with having the, the Rolfing very structural 10 series, the recipe and you know, and I have Rolf movement background and stuff, but then this whole other add on, I just, it's, I'm in a fascinated stage with that. And I really am curious more of to hear well, it's, it's kind of like has to do with how you come into contact, how you begin to touch. And so if I'm going in and, and my, my orientation is just to touch the muscle, you know, and you dive into whatever somebody is complaining about, that's one way. And that sometimes that works. But what I'm curious about is what are the layers between my hand coming into connection with somebody and how do I literally not go in but hold this space of listening first so that their system begins to come out to meet me and when I, I am able to make that connection how they're contacting me and showing me what's going on, the entanglement, the confusion. Like there may be a lot of confusion around your navel, in, out, all the history that's there. So it's like, 
how do my hands become ears, literally, to listen to their system? So I don't presuppose that I know what's best for you, but I listen to what your system is asking for. And I find this so much in working with women, especially with menstrual problems, menstrual cramps, uh, pregnancies, uh, uh, surgeries, that there is often this place where, wow, I can't differentiate anything. So what's most important is for my hands to learn to listen to their system and listen and acknowledge the confusion or the held history that's there. And when I take my attention off the palm of my hand, knowing, and I move it to the back of my hand, so I'm not touching just full on palm or fingers. I'm also very aware of the back of my hand. More of their system begins to communicate to me. I begin to listen at a different level. And in that listening, there's a fluidity. It's almost like there's a permission for their system not to just be worked on, but to be listened to and to be heard. And that seems to allow, the level of touch allows this fluidity to begin to show itself and move. Because you don't just hear the space that your hands are touching. You can begin to get a sense of the whole body. And that's the piece of wholeness that always, so, you know, one of the things I, I know in, in teaching Rolfers in different workshops is that there can be such an over-focus on a minutiae, on a part. And that's fine to have that understanding of the part, but at the same time, perceptually, to allow your awareness, your perception, to hold the whole of them. Okay, I'm at their shoulder joint, but I'm also aware of their whole body, or I'm working with their neck, but I'm also sensing the entire back body because we're, you know, they're on their back. I look and I see the front of their body. I can see their sides. But to remember just in my own awareness, back body. And this is where one of my wonderful colleagues, our colleagues, Hiro Atahata from Japan. I've taught in Japan many times, and they are, it's, Hiro is just a wonderful practitioner. You may want to invite him to talk to at some point. Um, he does speak English. And um, he, from a very, very early movement training that I did with Rebecca Carly Mills in Washington, D.C., Hiro was there. And we worked with this concept of yield. Yield is also a way for you to work with the umbilical hernia. So does when you yield, what do you do? But you rest. It is not a passive movement. It's an active coming into relationship. I rest into the table. I yield into the table. But I'm aware I'm not just becoming a noodle. So yield, and he has worked with yield, you'll see his work on Facebook, with really dropping people into these deeper places. For example, with 
L3, L4 in your body and what's going on with the umbilicus, yielding those vertebrae back may also help to drop the hernia back, to keep reinforming it. Oh yeah, it belongs back here, not coming forward. So all of that, the listening, the helping someone yield on the table, uh, three of the questions I'll ask if they come in and they've just driven off the highway and they've been late, they're late and they want to get their session. Are you lying on the table? Are you lying above the table? <laughs> or are you sinking into the table? And I want them to sink. So I also have a temporary... Uh, Tempur-Pedic foam pad, <laughs> memory foam pad on my table. So they sink, rest into themselves, especially in these chaotic times, remembering our back space <laughs> is really important. I'm not just out in front managing everything that's coming at me, the assaults, <laughs> of everything, but I'm able to rest back. All of that begins to allow the fluidity of the body, which is also its wholeness, to come to the fore. Fluid body, connected body. When you think of fluid, there are no boundaries. Things move in a way you have structure, but you also have movement fluidity. They go hand in hand as a practitioner, learning to shift your perception to hold the whole, whether you're working on their toe, you're working on their arm, you're working on their spine, you hold the whole of them as you come into contact. And people yeah. feel the difference. Yeah, I, I was fortunate that I had Ray as my phase three, and he talked a lot about that. Uh, I don't think at the time I fully, I don't think I, I don't think I could fully understand it. And I don't know if his in, intent was to have us to understand it at that moment as much as planting a seed. Yeah. And when I, when I started studying my, the, the biodynamic cranial sacral, cause I too had studied up ledger before and I, I too, I, I liked uh, maybe a little more cerebral. So I liked the, the step-by-step, but it always, it kind of felt invasive. And I had a friend who was biodynamic, uh, teacher and we would talk about stuff and I didn't know biodynamics and 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 I was still actually figuring I was figuring aspects of biodynamics out on myself and playing around with it but still very much me being in control <laughs> so when I started to to study more of the biodynamic approach and very much like one of the things Ray would have us do would be you know feeling into the room feeling out to you know the, the outside of the building all of that stuff and when I would bring that into the um, into the biodynamic approach, and then later into SI, and I'd love to hear maybe later about how you sort of integrate the two in together. Um, yeah. But the the amazing part of it is just letting the person on the table feel welcome, as opposed to feeling like, oh, you're looking at me. It's like you know, uh, and and I guess that ties into the yield, which very like karmically yield is what I've been playing with for the last two weeks. Been doing some uh, some Bonnie Bainbridge Cohen stuff, yeah. and really about yield. Interestingly, like, oh, I, I'm on the ground, but I I can't let go of this. Like, I'm trying to, but I, I can't. Okay, let's let's move. Let's figure that out more. Um, 
really um, just amazing. I'll, I'll send you an article here when I wrote about yield and mm. it's in an early journal. But go ahead. And so when you find that space where it's holding and you begin to uh, investigate yield in your own body, how do you do that? I think the, the, one of the best ways is to, to find a biodynamic cranial practitioner and work with them. But in this day of age of COVID, that doesn't work so well. Uh, although I have some friends who've been working on distance with that. But I had been playing a lot with, I'd been doing a bunch of Feldenkrais, and then I was kind of finding other movement ways out. And then I recently, I found a teacher that, that Nikki had introduced me to, uh, who we had on before, Kayla June. And she was able to sort of give me a little bit more guidance. But a lot of it is just is a lot of sort of slow rolling and moving and 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 tuning in and, and seeing like oh, okay is is this fluid or is it not is if i'm at rest am i at rest is my if i'm on my back is my stomach going to the ceiling is it going to the floor is it going to the sides what is what is happening in and so it's uh, some of it might be body scans and some of it may just you know or if i turn to the side it, it feels like I'm getting hooked a little bit. Well, where is that? Why is that? And how how can I let that? Does that need to be there? Does it not? How can I allow it to change um, if it if it wants to? Um, and what I want and what my body wants may not always be in tune. <laughs> well, you know, it's really important to make the distinction between: Am I thinking yield? Or do I have the sensory experience of yield in my body? And I have to say that Hubert Goudard, who I studied with just a little bit, but he was wonderful. And he talked about weight. And so weight in the bones, especially, is really great to bring into any exploration of yield because the weight will also take you there. And um, yeah, weight and reach. <laughs> Yeah, before I was a rolfer, I'd studied various forms of yoga nidra um, oh, as a yogi. Yeah. And so I was actually, I was bringing in aspects of that and bringing in weights and bringing in felt sensing. So what, is, what, what does this feel like? How does that feel into my practice? And later I found that that's incorporated a lot in Rolf movement and other stuff. I, I didn't know that at the time, but I find a lot of that is really helpful. But you, you make a great point, which is, is it the mind or, or not? Like, am I, is my mind? And that's, um, yeah. I'm from New England. I'm very like in my mind a lot. It's taken me, you know, and so yeah. Yeah, getting, getting out of the mind and getting into the body has been. Oh, it's, it's a lifelong journey. <laughs> Good. Good. Yeah, it is. You know, some days you're there and some days you're not. But yeah. that question, am I thinking this feeling or am I sensing and that's, you know, that's the real challenge, I think, for whoever we're working with, including ourselves. Am I thinking it, thinking the concept of yield, or am I experiencing, sensing my body drop into the support of what I'm sitting on? Yeah. I think you guys gave great examples. And one I wanted to add, just in case, you know, we have some listeners that are dancing between this two, I think also titrating through movement that you can do this dance of like, Oh, I'm really thinking about the movement. And then as I come out of it, balance feeling into that yield and then keeping moving in between a particular movement that you might feel stuck in. And as you 
play with that, you will start to probably that the yielding is the softening and feeling less segments and feeling more fluid. (laughs) (laughs) And remember, yield is active. It's an active perception. It's an active feeling. It's like when you come to a yield sign, when you're driving, you don't go to sleep. (laughs) You... You literally pay attention. <laughs> so that's, that's, I always want to say, no, it's not becoming, you know, spaghetti noodles, overcooked spaghetti. It's about paying attention. And I love that yield, <laughs> yield traffic <laughs> um, analogy. Cause I mean, we can all relate to that, whether we're super somatic nerds or just regular old people. I mean, that's what yield is. That's what yield is. I'm from Massachusetts. We don't follow signs in the street when driving. <laughs> Excuses. <laughs> anyway, so, yeah, so fluidity. It's beautiful. It's wholeness. The body is fluid. So, Carol, this has all been so really yummy and the ex- explanation of the different ways of working and structural integration but I'm curious how we can bring this back to what we were talking about in the beginning of how does this work? How do we bring this work into more of a multiple world of just not for the white people, taught by the white people? Well, that's what's so beautiful about this uh group the uh, we began as uh, anti-racism si for anti-racism somatics this group of eight and um, that's exactly the question we're asking and how do you bring this into the world because you know it's how we make our living so how do you charge in uh that's appropriate to different uh economic classes okay and what i would like every person to read (laughs) or to listen to on audible is a book by isabel wilkerson called cast and in that book she talks about the caste system as the basis of the race of racism the economic caste and how that's where reparations for people of color come becomes really uh, an important topic. But I, I truly believe that in her writing in this book and by reading it as a white person, and I grew up in Detroit, so I grew up in the riots and I grew up near the projects. I have been exposed to the poverty Uh, I had a wonderful, went to a Catholic high school, grade school, great high school. And um, one of the sisters I had, Sister Donna Nickel, who also told me about rolfing (laughs) after she left the convent, she wrote me this letter and said, I'm doing this very intense work. It's called rolfing. Well, I went to the Detroit library and tried to find it because when you're a kid, a teenager, I'm looking for intense. I want real. But she used to take us down to the inner city of Detroit and we would clean homes. It was kind of like Vista volunteers in high school. 
So there is that paucity in having more students of color in the Rolfing Institute, in other institutes of bodywork, is very important. And that's what we're looking at in this group. Isabel Wilkerson's book, Cast, puts really reading it, puts you in their shoes. What is the culture they've grown up with? And if you are into NBA basketball at all, it's amazing to hear Jalen Brown, LeBron James, Marcus Smart talk about how when they were children, they would run and hide when they saw a policeman, a white policeman coming because they knew they weren't safe. So how does that information and Isabel Wilkerson goes into this in her book, you will be touched beyond with the culture of fear that is imposed by this white colonial mindset onto the black person, the black skinned person from lynching to I can get, I can drive, I can be in a car, I can be stopped by a, pol a policeman. I'm not afraid he's going to shoot me. But when you listen to these black athletes talk about the fear they have for their children and how they speak to them about do not fight them, just go with what's going on. Do not stand up, do not... Uh, engage in any kind of resistance, you know that black men are killed more than white. Yeah. So it's yep. unfortunate. I met a woman at our neighborhood pool recently, and her and her husband, both white professors um, in mm -hmm. a southern state, uh, a really, I'm kind of being censoring my yeah. for, uh, confidentiality, but pretty uh, Ivy League school in the southern states and they adopted a child a black boy who is kind of coming of an age of teenager and he is um, autistic mm -hmm. and they left the south and moved to Boulder where I live because they were starting to get concern of how their son is going to be treated and how it was becoming unsafe that not only being black but then being having differences with being autistic that this poor kid who you know was just wanting to walk down his neighborhood is being called names being spit on and this is like this is Older. now this like your last year yeah. and it's and they're in a highly educated um community that in the south yes and you know coming i mean boulder where it's and i it was an interesting conversation i was like because I grew up in Memphis, so I'm aware of the demographic um, diversity mm -hmm. in, in a way of the diversity there. And I was like, well, how, how is it coming into a very white town? <laughs> and she was like, it still has its differences, but in a way, like we don't fear our child's life. There yes. might still be, uh, it still might be very white here and it has its own mm -hmm. issues with um, lack of color. But he started speaking. He was nonverbal in before. And he's, I think he is, he's, what did she say, like 14 years old? Mm -hmm. So 
nonverbal all the way from, you know, from 14 years. And then after six months being in Boulder, is that a, um, a, a school that was a little better equipped to, to work with kids with autistic needs, um, became verbal and was able to communicate. Yeah. So uh, it's, so it's an, it's a very interesting conversation because I like, I'm coming from, I had a big part of my career was in New York city uh-huh. and you know, I know a, a black acupuncturist. I know I, it's, it's just so interesting how this, and I'm not 100% not denying that there's racism within this wellness culture, but it, I'm just holding these, these thoughts of, um, how some people are exposed to it and are professionals in in the world and work with a lot of different people. And then there's these pockets throughout the United States where it is so white and segregated. Mm-hmm. That's right. But I think in order to start really deconstructing and opening to other culture, whatever culture it is, that we have to understand the depth of what they've been through and what they are continuing to have to deal with. And look, and literally her book just took me into those places of understanding on a very sensory level. And at the same time, looking at how the roots of white colonialism have being white having the privilege we have to study what we've had, to earn money at what we love to do, we weren't, we didn't have to go and just be secretaries. We got to find this work of touching that we love and using it to grow ourselves. But I also have to acknowledge what's inside of me and turn over those little rocks that are really deep, the moss underneath with the bugs about what is the imprint I received in my own growing up being in white skin. Yep. I listened to the white fragility Uh and that was, um, right. It was hard because I had to sit with kind of what you're saying of what, what, what what came with me without because in my in my heart in the way I've oriented in the world I've, I haven't felt racist but but then I was like wait a minute that's just that's not good enough like there's enough. something there's there's something else I have to dig deeper and it was it was hard to hear because it was I had that's to acknowledge right. of like my privilege that that's right. um and that and that the, that I have, how that's created so much harm to, to other people. And Nikki, and, that's the first step is yeah. to realize how much privilege we've had just because of the luck of the skin color and what came our way because of that. I had that realization a lot longer before this even blew up because I spent so much time in Asia and it was like, I had places where I I had someone stop me where was I I was in Taiwan and ask if I wanted to be, I'm not even joking, like the campaigns person, spokesperson for a company (laughs) because I was white and they wanted a white person 
for that. My girlfriend is Chinese and she's a teacher and where she is, the white people are paid more, but they're paid more because it's their native tongue. But mm -hmm. some of those people aren't better teachers than my girlfriend's a great teacher. She's one of the best they have. She will not make in that position. She will not make, and it's slightly different because it's, it's language, but, but still like if you were to look at shareability, she won't make that. Yeah. I'm, it's like you said, it's been very difficult. I've, I have a lot of friends of all different nationalities. I've worked in the Caribbean. I've worked a lot in Asia and the Middle East of people of non-white skin tone and one of uh, I had a good friend I've known for 20 years, and when this was all kicking off, like uh, in April or May, we had a talk. And similar, he was driving from one new home to a new uh, old home to a new home, and he had to keep his license on the the seat out of fear of being shot looking for a license. And I never thought about that in regards to myself, but also in regards to anyone else, especially this friend who. To even think, how would anyone, he's a, such a nice, kind, sweet guy. Why would anyone ever think? But that's the reality of, of so, his yeah. life. Yes. So I, I believe that by, by really understanding the reality of another culture and how this white culture has really put itself at the top, you know, across from England, <laughs> the Puritans that came over, you know, that was the accepted culture. So I'm, I'm really interested right now in, and because of this group I'm, that has been so beautiful to be with, uh, deconstructing this white colonial imprint, understanding as you read, like the book cast and step into these shoes of the black, a black culture and feeling where that horror is within my own system or in my field. It's a real important piece to begin to own. And in owning that and knowing that, that will begin to diversify my own um, engagement with different cultures. I mean, I, I love the Japanese culture. I've spent a lot of time there. And the Latino culture and the black culture. So how do I keep increasing that kind of communication between? Yeah. History. So when we're looking at you, me, anyone else can say, well, I, I haven't had this at that point. You know, I, I'm, I'm not racist or I'm not this or, but then going back to your grandmother right, of which we are genetically tied embryologically to, and not saying that either of your, your grandmothers were racist, but other people and the sign of the times, what was going on at the time, which may not have seen, uh, our grandparents would have had separate drinking fountains. That wouldn't necessarily have maybe seen racist. That was just what happened, you know, or, or that's how they possibly could perceive it. But that whole thought process is all going on within them on a cellular level, yes. of which is getting passed down to you. And so how do we also clear this historical cellular? That's exactly right. And that's the cultural imprint that we aren't, but you're, you're naming it beautifully, Andrew, because that's the- Rarely does anyone say that about anything I say, but I'll take that. <laughs> really, 
truly, because you took it back through a lineage and in the cellular imprint. And one of the men on this in this group was talking about he was working with a black man in the, the Rolfing series, and he came to the throat. And how beautiful the, the session must have felt so safe. This man began to talk about the fear of lynching, which is, so you see, as I understand, that's, that's this fear that's resonated through their culture from the time they were brought over on the ships and the South, and then the Civil War. Then, and it allows me to also look inside myself. So you start getting this understanding about our humanness and about what we carry. And sometimes it's on a cellular level. And I had somebody tell me, well, I don't see color. I only see the person. And I thought, and I felt very bad about that because I see color. I see ethnicity. In Detroit, you grew up with all kinds of ethnic groups. So my friend, uh, Don Johnson, recommended this book, Diverse Bodies, Diverse Practices, of which he is an editor. And in one of the stories written by a Black woman, she talks about people who don't see color, who say they don't see color. And it was so heart, it touched my heart that she said, if you don't see color and you just erase it all, like, oh, it's still, I don't see color, I don't see color. It denies the history that a person of color has experienced. And I thought, wow, this is this is profound because when I see a person of color, a black man, a black woman, a black child, I know that that cellular history you're talking about is there. It has come through their grandmothers. It has come through their fathers. Okay. And I see that and I can experience it. So, well, and I would say that not seeing color would be boring. and that we should be seeing color and respecting everybody's color and everybody's and I know I, I know the, the black I understand that black lives matter and I'm not diminishing that whatsoever but just in the the greater picture of it is that we should all be respected for our culture I mean that's what makes this world rich and we should be celebrating it and not be fearing it and and judging it and, and see what we can learn with how other people eat, how other people live, how other yeah. people dance. I mean, come on, we're coming, you know, through the whole movement. I mean, there's so many stories in the way people move through this, through this world and yes, and celebrate that. But, celebrate it. Yeah. The diversity. Yeah. And, the diversity. And you know, it's like when I look at, there's a movement that goes through the sternum that's front to back and we don't we don't actually have that in our white culture <laughs> there's like this but so practicing that just sternal movement and allowing our hearts to rest in the back rather than being 
upfront and all that. It's like having them rest. What a different experience it is in our bodies. So, so hey, when I lived in New York, I went to so many African dance, ballroom dance, and um, and I feel like I, I mean, clearly I like to dance because I, I wanted to get into these studios and when I'm dancing by myself, I feel like by my rhythm, but when I'm comparing seeing like all the, with these other cultures, oh my gosh, when I tried to be in an African dance, it was like white girl shined and not, the, not in the way that you would imagine. I, the undulation, it's just, is being, not there. <laughs> is not there. And same with like the Latin culture of like, you know, I mean, I spent so many times and I mean, it, it was great being able to be embraced by, again, so many cultures that are willing to dance with me because, you know, talking about mirror neurons, like enough people were willing to, <laughs> to dance with me and I eventually got there and I started, it was in a, and to feel into those movements and to feel into that cultural celebration of the music that was being played. It felt so good, and yeah, it. Um, yeah, really I'm interested. So yeah, so all of that, all of that movement, and diversity. They're finding that diversity in groups. White, black, Latino, Asian, uh, women, men, LGBTQ. You know, all of that. The more diverse a group is, the more creative it can be the more creativity is sparked because you're coming from so many different uh, places in your understanding of the world. It's not just one legislated white. And I would like to add to that when you are open to diversity, you have to, you're opening up your heart. And so with that, you have, greater love, greater capacity for love, That's greater ability to see through differences. And when you can hold all that, and, you know, you can be different and not agree. And, and you, when you're holding in, in that type of community, you lash out and want to lynch somebody or um, all the horrific hate crimes that happen because it's like, it's un, it's it's so hard for me to understand these degree of hate crimes that happen. Granted, I understand that maybe some of that is some mental illness, but I also and and I recognize that of those imbalances and but then there is and I don't also want to just like write it off. Oh, they have a mental imbalance. No, some of these people are downright cruel and hateful and need to be corrected. That's right. Because no one deserves to to be treated that way. Race, gender, demographic, poor, rich. I mean But in order to correct someone and in order for someone to be to be open to learn from diversity, they have to be open. <laughs> you can correct someone as much as you want. If they don't want to hear it, they're not gonna be corrected. They're not going to receive it because they're not at that point. And similar, like, I mean, unfortunately, we're all 
probably like-minded so we can go around and, and talk about the beauty and the great. And the three of us, I'm going to guess, want to have our flaws pointed out as ways to improve ourselves. So, you know, our, and people in our mindset are like, oh, okay, like, let me, let me hear what I didn't do so I can change it. But the person doing the hate crime, most likely, I mean, I can't speak for them. A lot of them, I mean, some may not recognize fully what they're doing, but a lot are, are not, they're in their belief systems. And belief systems are really hard to, to change if people, you know, your belief system essentially is your psychological foundation for the world around you. And if some, for some people, starting to change that is taking the rug out. They don't, they have built or have been built for them a very comfortable phenomenological reality of, of the world. And to change that would mean they're not safe. Uh, and even if their safety is providing unsafety for others, they may not want to change that. Us three, I would gather, are like, oh, I, I did something that wasn't safe for someone. Okay, thanks for telling me. Let me go and correct that. And so it's hard for us to like not understand why it's hard for us to understand someone like Donald Trump. Like he's the most obvious person. I know that, but it's hard to understand because it's like the exact opposite of almost everything we could possibly believe. If you told, if you said to him, Hey, what you're doing is wrong. He's going to say, I don't care. Like, I don't care what you say, you know? Yeah. But I think the, the point being made is that when we all, even in our little micro groups start to recognize that exactly what you're saying open up our bubble in in becoming in seeking out diversity whether maybe maybe you're comfortable in your own world and don't see the need to change but if you're really wanting to make change for the greater good seeking out the diversity even if it's not something you necessarily thought about before in your in your need because the more we get that way then other people can start seeing how there's not a threat in it that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what you're both saying about the heart is so important. It's about love. <laughs> it's about, you know, and not romantic love. It's just unconditional, positive regard for another human being and how are they being treated, you know, <laughs> and caring on that level about the treatment of different people. Treatment. Heart. Um, I know I'm still working on that on myself, clearing my own blind spots. Grateful that I have teachers who can show me the way, and teachers are everyone. Uh, I'm currently staying with a friend in, in Vermont who is uh, LGBTQA community, and I'm just learning. You know, I thought I knew a lot, but I'm learning new stuff every day. And some days she'll sort of be like, Was I too hard on you? I'm like, No, this is great. Like, this is helping me. Like, not be worse later on. So like, keep laying it down, dude. Thank you. T teach me. Yeah. Teach me. <laughs> teach me. <laughs> no, that's, that's great. That's really great. It is diversity, kindness, heart. Well, Carol, yep. I think it's awesome kind of just talking about the, from the history of structural integration being founded by Ida founded by a woman, but can kind of turn into a man's world. Then you're kind of in, in it when women were starting to become the teachers, then this whole metal juiciness of integrating the different modalities of really feeling into the body 
creating differentiation without being biased to mm -hmm. a tissue or fluid, just kind of holding it all together. Yeah. And then now um, being invited with this, this unique group, I can't wait to hear more. I know some of these people um, yeah. was not aware of what they're doing. Yeah. So yeah. can't wait to hear more of what's, what's that to turn into and how that, is That's going to involved. well when when we launch we're going to do a soft launch of the website and also this uh whole place where you can blog and discuss i'll send both of you an invitation oh, thank <laughs> you because because it's really um it'll be exciting we don't know where it's going to go and one of the people in it is actually a professor of dance and uh, with he does, he lives in Minnesota, but is connected with a, a university in Maryland. Uh, and he's really looking at this too with his, so it's about movement. How do we move this? And how do we, how do we get our hearts moving <laughs> in these ways that are, give us this kind of motion? That's, because I think that's all part of the opening moving differently in our lives. You know, a lot of what I say is meant with good intentions. It doesn't always receive that way. Ida was sometimes referred to as this white witch in the best of ways. I know witch can have a negative connotation, but in sort of this mysterious, wonderful, powerful woman with yeah. white hair. And I have a feeling uh, in the best of ways, you are also just a, a white witch that can just sort of see and do and just shift things so easily with people and so i, I want to yeah. <laughs> but thank you <laughs> it's like yes white hair does serve a purpose <laughs> for people listening here we'll, we'll share your website but are you teaching anything do you have any plans for t teaching are you still waiting like, you for covid to to stop mutating <laughs> mm -hmm. because there was just an article about how covid because nobody is wearing masks social mm. distancing. There's a lot of people who aren't doing that. COVID is actually mutating faster. So um, Ray and I will be offering <laughs> at some point uh, another foundational cranial training. I also teach just embryological trainings where you get to go into the movement and the, um, these different movements and formations, how the arms form very fascinating oh which that sounds come amazing from the heart which yeah. come from the heart it's yeah. all growing out and um so but that's kind of i think we're just in a limbo right now and especially until after this election things are just kind of on hold but i will be teaching again and or in fact in march we, i was in boulder COVID was just starting to come out. Ray and I canceled the class. We all flew home. And uh, now we're waiting to resume. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's interrupted a lot of our lives. Mm -hmm. But we also have an eviction. Yeah. Well, we'll post your, your website so people can find out more when you are teaching and what's going on yeah, with you. Yeah, up there. Eventually. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I actually actually have to go and see a client, but okay. um, it's been wonderful. Thank you so much for Thank the Thank you. Thank you. Have a good client session. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye, Carol. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. 
Thanks for listening to us at Touching Into Presence. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. You can find out more about Carol at holographictouch.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd appreciate it if you would leave a positive review of the podcast and subscribe to it through the platform of your choice. When you do this, it really helps other people find this, and we greatly appreciate your support. We look forward to hearing back from you and seeing you on our next conversation at Touching Into Presence. Bye-bye.